0: Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to our Dirty Laundry Stories of White Ladies Making a Mess of Things. And How We Need to Clean Up Our Act.
1: It's our Dirty Laundry. I'm Mandy. And I'm Katie. And this is where you come every week, barring unforeseen catastrophe, that we have uh, episodes for you about white women's general shittiness and lack of solidarity and complicity in white supremacy, both historically and today. We are two white women ourselves. We've been friends since we were babies. (laughs)
0: Yeah, seems like it.
1: I like, know we're still we're still babes. I had a birthday last week. Oh, by the way, I didn't die. Remember how we were Yay. worried? Yeah, But yes. I was like taunting the universe to wrap up my life on my birthday, but just not this year. Thank you very much. Um, and a, a friend wrote a letter. She's like twenty years older than me and um, called me young Katie. And I thought, oh, that feels nice.
0: No one said that in a
1: long time. Um, how are you doing?
0: Good. You know, same old busy (laughs) running around like a crazy person. I think my days off are not days off. They're just days to do 8 million other things. I know. Uh, You know, such is life. All the things that I could cut back on are things I don't want to cut back on. That's right. So it's like... Yeah. What do you do? I feel it for sure. <laughs> Apologies. I, I shouldn't. Someone also told me last week, don't
1: apologize for functioning, which I appreciate so much. But I'm hoping everyone really likes my husky voice that you're getting. My new I do laryngitis voice. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, I am really excited to talk to you today and tell you what I've been learning about now. And I know this is just par for the course that this is just gonna take longer than we expected, but there um I wanna talk about the the founding of now, the initial document that founded it, and the early couple of presidents that that charted its trajectory as an organization and why they represent, I think so powerfully tensions that have been in feminist groups, especially coming from white feminist interactions with women who aren't like them on a gender access, sexual identity access, race access, uh, that it just, these it, it's such powerful case studies of that. So I want to dive into that today. Last week, we talked about how the founding of NOW tends to get marked with this meeting in the 60s, but actually it goes back much, much further, and of course is rooted in the activism of primarily Black women in labor yep. movements and civil rights movements. Um, but we're going to sort of start today. Then we're going to pick up where the conventional narrative usually starts. Uh, okay. So yeah, do you, anything yeah, that I'm you? Excited. Yeah, <laughs> excited <laughs> to get into it. Well, let me ask you this. So there are going to be so many parallels between this and the suffragist movement. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about what your takeaways were kind of lessons learned from the suffragist movement of, of like red flags
0: that came out of that history that we learned. Well, I think the main, well, I don't know if it's the main problem, but one of the problems um, with the suffragist movement is that I think the main women involved in that felt like they had to compromise to get what they wanted. Um, they felt like they had to like team up in a way um, with other white men to get to the point where they would get their rights. And, and in doing so, what they had to do was throw black women and black people under the bus, basically. Um, they made their goal like getting white women the mm. right to vote at any cost, but primarily by saying that they wanted the right before Black people would have the right. And then they said a whole bunch of really awful and racist, <laughs> terrible things. Yep. When they, did that, they basically just climbed their way to the top mm. and clawed their way to the top by pushing other people under them, I think. Um, and unfortunately, I think that happens a bit in our later feminist history as well. So,
1: um, and, and then we learned progress. that like
0: when that happens, we don't actually accomplish anything mm. as we see from the fact that we're still fighting the same battles today that we were fighting back then mm. in a lot of cases. So so, so many of them, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, those
1: that definitely is going to be something that shows up in this again. I was just making a little bulleted list as I was doing the research. I thought, oh my God, this is so similar. And actually some of the people I'm going to talk about were directly inspired by Susan B. Anthony. So I think, oh, whenever you're modeling your leadership off of Susan B. Anthony, we know that there are going to be problems. So thinking about having like a super singular focus on just one issue and framing it in a very narrow way that benefits white middle-class straight women over anybody else, um, or frames white middle-class women's straight women's experiences as quote women's experience, you know, like that yep. It's just our experience is the experience, not being able to see the ways that it's super diverse and that there are power differentials and, you know, all sorts of reasons. That's not true. Um, also there was a lot of intergroup fighting. If you remember when we taught about the suffragist movement or the women fight for women's rights, that, there was a lot of like Game of thrones happening, like a lot of jockeying mm-hmm. for position. And that is absolutely something that happens too. And then there are these tensions about tactic. Like, should we be more reformist? Should we focus more on working within the system? Should we be more radical? Should we be fo- focused more on direct action? Like all of those tensions I think are still, you know, those are universal kind of classic tensions that happen within a lot of the movements that we're learning about. Um yeah. So, yes. All right. So all of that is going to come into play. I just thought it was a good connection to make. And if people haven't listened to the suffrage episodes, you should because they're good, but you don't need them to understand this. OK, so when yeah, you go okay. to now's website, as I said, they're telling their own story as um, this idea that, quote, strong feminist voices were dwindling in number and volume after World War Two. The momentum of the feminist movement that won suffrage and expanded women's rights in the early 20th century had waned. And I will just pause right there because one of the sources I'm going to talk about uh, that's looking at the, at now's history through a black feminist lens would immediately call that out as like a very white whitewashing right. of history. Because if right. you look at all sorts of other efforts and movements and campaigns that were happening, especially like anti-lynching campaigns, civil rights campaigns, like – nothing had waned it was just that middle class white straight women had stopped participating right right so that's i was gonna say
0: it seems very true of middle class upper class white women though like once we get what we want we are just like sitting back and tip of the hat good day (laughs) back to Um, our brunches back to mimosa brunch
1: yes (laughs) oh my god uh stop (laughs) brunching we, enough brunches. Uh, okay, so the they do credit the Civil Rights Movement, and in, but they really start with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and they don't name any names. So last episode, we talked a lot about Um, Anna Arnold Hedgman, Dorothy Spate. We talked about Polly Murray. They do mention Polly Murray, but they don't talk about anybody else, which I thought was annoying. Um, They also are really focused in on the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, I think, that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, started. And this was in large part because women had lobbied hard to get an amendment prohibiting sex discrimination into that bill. And remember, it was actually added by this dickhead douchebag who thought that it would actually tank the bill so that's why he was like you know totally Mm -hmm. his mustache laughing like an evil man in the corner but it didn't work it passed and so title seven is in there but eeoc wasn't like it it clearly was not enforcing this like all these cases Mm -hmm. came up to it they're like well that sounds fine like you could fire someone because she got married yeah that sounds about right you know so they even though it existed it wasn't producing the results that it wanted. And so yeah. Polly Murray was really pissed off. She's giving speeches about how the EEOC is falling down on the job, and Betty Friedan hears about it, reaches out to her, and the now history says quote, one of many historic link-ups that led to a reemergence of the feminist movement, thanks to Betty Friedan calling Polly Murray. Then they have a meeting in D.C. for women to come together, and um, the EEOC members who were sympathetic and were frustrated with what the commission was doing were like you know, whispering like, can, "You guys should really start something to pressure this group because it can't get its shit together." And so, mm. the now website says that Ferdinand and others—it's always Dan and others—invited mm. others, mm-hmm, frustrated. <laughs> they invited frustrated conference participants to discuss alternative strategies in Betty's hotel room. Fredan wrote the acronym "NOW" on a paper napkin. Some fifteen to twenty women assembled in Fredan's hotel room that night. Among them were Katherine Conway, Inca O'Hanron, Rosalind Loring, Mary Eastwood, Dorothy Hayner, Polly Murray, and Kay Clarenbach. And just as an aside, several of those women had a really deep labor union experience in addition to civil rights movement experience with the United Auto Workers, the Communication Workers of America, the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union. So these were like super experienced organizers um, for the most part. So now it begins. It has 300 women and men who become members in the first like few months though Mm -hmm. only 30 people participated in the first meeting and the website says now's flair for making a few seem like many may have begun with this first formal meeting and i wrote That's a weird thing to admit. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't know. Anyway, so then they they announced their first officers. Um, There's like a whole bunch of people that are involved. A couple of them are people who resigned from the EEOC to become part of now because they're so frustrated, um, including a man. And then the now's website says that the statement of purpose was drafted by Betty Friedan. But other sources I saw credited it with Polly Murray. So I don't know but i have suspicions okay then on now's website there's this giant notice that reads notice this is a historic document which was adopted at now's first national conference in washington dc on october 29th 1966 the words are those of the 1960s and do not reflect current language or now's current priorities and i was so mystified like okay fair enough Mm-hmm. In in what ways does it not reflect that? Like right. can you be more specific? I was really yeah. curious yeah. about that. Um okay. then it the very first clause starts, we men and women who hereby constitute ourselves as the national organization for women, and even right okay, so there first, I first thought... like
0: it starts with men. <laughs> I know.
1: I thought it was so, okay, so strange.
0: <laughs> men and women. In the first national organization women's statement. The hell? I know. I okay. thought it was really odd.
1: Okay, so yeah. I sent this statement to you because it's actually pretty mm-hmm. lengthy and I was trying to figure out like what parts of it should I read? What? And we'll link to it in the show notes and on our website so people can read it. It's very easy to find. You can find it on NOW's website for sure. But I'm just curious, what stood out to you when you looked over it to prep for today?
0: Your homework that I assigned you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, well, that first line, of course... Stood out, but then I think in general, it just the entire thing seems to be a statement of bringing women up to equalizing them with men, but not in the way of recognizing that what women already do and already are involved in. Mm-hmm. Has value and needs to be valued differently and recognized differently. It's just about obtaining that same status that men have, um, which I think is just like a miss from the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. There were a lot of pieces in. I don't know. I could definitely read some Murray in it, especially when there were very specific references. Like, by the way, all of this is worse for black women. You know, like, yeah, really, there were really several specific. mentions of that for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But there were parts that I thought, hmm. So, for example, one paragraph says, Um, Today's technology has reduced most of the productive chores which women once performed in the home and in mass production industries based upon routine, unskilled labor. This same technology has virtually eliminated the quality of muscular strength as a criterion for filling most jobs while intensifying Americans American industry's need for creative intelligence. In view of this new industrial revolution created by automation in the mid-20th century, women can and must participate in old and new fields of society in full equality or become permanent outsiders, which... On the one hand, I personally totally agree with. On the other hand, does absolutely nothing to criticize capitalism Mm -hmm. at all, Um, Mm. which is a black feminist critique of white feminism is there's like typically zero economic analysis or an understanding of the way these structures are super exploitative because of capitalism.
0: Yeah, Um, it just all sits within the framework of capitalism. It doesn't try to question that underlying framework at all.
1: Which is definitely not equal and like if if that's your goal that's your goal um yeah. it's just something that struck me you know that that it mm-hmm. seemed like let's get full equality within this exploitative system which i don't know i guess that's something to argue for but also even in the way i just described it kind of impossible because it's yeah. an exploitative <laughs> system you know system. so it's never yep. gonna work mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but there definitely are examples where they tease out um like how discrimination for black women is a double discrimination I mean that's literally the terminology that gets used they're victims of double discrimination of race and sex um until now too few fema- women's organizations and official spokesmen have been willing to speak out against these dangers facing women um so there are there are parts of it that I think are more intentionally intersectional um any other mm-hmm. parts of it that stood out to you
0: um mm-mm. i did highlight several things but i don't know Mm hmm. I mean, I think a lot of it focuses on women entering the workforce and becoming As- equal with men that way. But then I did also see, you know, they do focus a little bit on things that we are still fighting for that I feel like we haven't made any progress on mm-hmm. um, when they talk about it says about halfway through true innovation or true equality of opportunity and freedom of choice for women requires such practical and possible innovations as a nationwide network of childcare centers, Mm -hmm. which will make it unnecessary for women to retire completely from safety or from society until their children are grown and national programs to provide retraining for women who have chosen to care for their children full time. So that idea of putting something into place to care for children, like, just the recognition yeah. that if women leave the home, there's still things in the home that need care. It so. mentioned, too,
1: specifically, like, in partnership with men that marriage needs to be rethought and the distribution mm-hmm. of labor within marriage. There, If I missed it, tell me, but I don't think there was anything about gay rights or lesbian rights. Like, there no. was no... Mm-hmm nothing. It was like the presumption is a woman is in relation to a man in some way. Right. And or, or let
0: alone single women who don't have exactly husbands or partners of any kind.
1: And I yeah. was also struck by what we learned about in our season on eugenics and reproductive rights. What, just how differently white middle-class women thought about choice than poor women, women of color. Well, like the choice to have kids, for instance, was one that was super important because there was sterilization happening and like really dangerous abortions versus the choice to not become a mother, which was the preeminent concern of a lot of white middle-class women. So just the last paragraph at the end here says, We believe that women will do most to create a new image of woman by acting now and by speaking out in behalf of their own equality, freedom, and human dignity, not in pleas for special privilege nor in enmity toward men who are also victims of the current half-equality between the sexes, but in an active, self-respecting partnership with men. By so doing, women will develop confidence in their own ability to determine actively in partnership with men the conditions of their life, their choices, their future, and their society. So it's a document worth taking a look at. Um, Again, I'm not sure which elements of it the organization denounces now, despite Mm -hmm. its notice saying we don't like this doesn't represent us today Mm -hmm. Um, because some of it I think hopefully would and some of it would, you know. Who knows? Do they have a current statement of purpose? Oh, they probably do. I didn't. To? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I didn't get that deep yeah. into it. Apologies. Okay. Um, okay. No, this wasn't like okay. the Daughters of the Confederacy, where I was worried it was going to fuck up my computer's algorithm <laughs> by looking, <laughs> like, digging really deep into that very awful <laughs> website. But no, I mean, I'm happy to poke around on yeah. it more and see what I can find out. But okay, so then yeah. they decided that the structure of the organization, they've got the statement of purpose. They're going to have, um like national membership that there will be a national conference. Then between the conferences, there's going to be a national board of 35 people with five officers. And they basically are charged with, um, actions. Like they meet every three months and then the officers meet more frequently and they get to figure out what the agenda is and execute strategy. Like they're tasked with that. And then it, I think elections are every two years, maybe, um, for the the editorial or for the executive board. So right off the bat, they're very focused on title seven in the civil rights act. They are taking immediate action on enforcement efforts. They authorize a legal committee to take action on behalf of this case. I mentioned where um, flight attendants were being fired when they got married, which again, it is just such a bonkers thing to think about the context of all of this. Like Mm -hmm. there are clearly some things that are better now because they just seemed so, laughably bananas.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, but okay. Right. So, um and they had all sorts of task forces doing different things. Um Friedan wrote in a report of the 1966 conference, "We wasted no time on ceremonials or speeches, gave ourselves barely an hour for lunch and dinner. At times we got very tired and impatient, but there was always a sense that we were deciding that what we were deciding was not just for now, but for a century, we shared a moving moment of realization that we had now indeed entered history. So she becomes the first president. Mm -hmm. The second president elected is Eileen Hernandez. And this is a big deal because she is a black woman and it's covered in the press. Like now definitely gets a ton of national media attention. Jet magazine had her on the cover and the headline was black woman Heads strive to liberate all women. And it's just like this gorgeous photo of her. Um, and it's a predominantly white membership of now has been, and still is elected her, even though she was publicly, criticizing the organization for racism she said quote white women need to be as intimately involved in dealing with racism as they are with doing away with sexism that was from the jet article like as she's getting elected so i just wanted to talk a little bit about her because i think she's really interesting okay she was born in brooklyn in 1926 her parents were jamaican american um, I don't know if her parents immigrated or if their parents immigrated, but they lived in an all-white neighborhood, actually, and her parents were like really outspoken, like we should get to live here, you know, leave us alone. Um, mm-hmm. She goes to Howard University and graduates with honors, uh, degrees in political science and sociology. She gets a master's degree in government from Cal State LA. And that's actually something that I meant to point out last week is that a lot of the, almost all of the women- including the women of color, were had graduate degrees that were in these leadership mm-hmm. roles, mm-hmm. Um, which, is which is just interesting. interesting. It's like mm-hmm. neither here nor there. It's just, yeah, something I find interesting. Um, sh- and there are, of course, critiques about class that cut across racial lines. They intersect and cut across racial lines that I think are really important to the critiques of now as being really elitist because of some mm-hmm. of these demographics. Like um, in the 70s, in 1974, I think, an assessment of their enrollment showed that 60% of their members had undergraduate degrees and 30% had graduate degrees. So hmm. definitely not like regardless of racial ethnic demographics, like not super representative of women as a whole, right. you know, yep, not like I'm a big proponent of higher ed. I have a PhD. Like I learned so much that was incredibly helpful to me, yes. but you don't but need if it. You're not
0: including all of these like good, you know, representative cut of society, then you're missing out on. Problems and things that need to be addressed. We know oh, from
1: it, it gives you, know. you tools that you can use in mm-hmm. solidarity with social movements for sure, but you don't need that to figure stuff out. And mm-hmm. you can get so disconnected from people's everyday experiences, like on the ground, that you stop knowing what would even be helpful to people. So, um, okay, so she gets married just for a few years. She gets divorced, and she was initially an organizer in the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and then became the Education and PR Director for the Pacific Coast region for that union. She gets appointed in 1962 to be the Deputy Chief of the California Division of Fair Employment Practices, gets a national reputation, and LBJ, nominates or appoints her in 1964 as the only woman to serve on the EEOC and which was newly formed because of the Civil Rights Act. That's like what all this hubbub is kind of about in some ways, like why this group of people come together to form this specific organization is in their history, their telling of the history because of the EEOC. So she resigns in 1966. And actually that flight attendant case, she recuses, she's told that she has to recuse herself because she had been elected to leadership and now so they're like you can't you're not a really an objective um person who can decide this case of super sexist discrimination in the workplace because you're an elected official in a feminist organization oh. <laughs> what the fuck okay <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're too much of an expert on this so we can't have you participating right. in this you decision. have an
0: opinion so <laughs> like, you know
1: good day an informed opinion by the right. way like a deeply <laughs> expert opinion mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so she says goodbye to the EEOC you know takes this position at now and then um starts her own consulting firm that focuses on racial and gender discrimination once she's elected she there's a lot of stuff she's involved in she testifies in congress on behalf of the ERA which i know i'm we're definitely going to talk more about so yep. just stick a Big giant tent pole in the ERA, and mm-hmm. then uh, at the congressional hearing, she says, "Gentlemen, of course she says gentlemen because it's only dudes in the mm-hmm. committee. Women are enraged. We are dedicated, and we mean to become first class citizens in this country. We really do not feel that these hearings are necessary. Congress could and should vote immediately on the ERA. Which spoiler doesn't get passed. We'll talk more about that."
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she what well, gets passed but doesn't get ratified eventually. That's right. thank you right yes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right 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 which mm-hmm. is
1: still it's just bonkers okay mm-hmm. so she helps organize um the 1970 strike for peace and equality which of course in other sources gets credited to betty Friedan and others despite uh eileen hernandez being the president of now that sponsors mm-hmm. the strike for peace and equality had you ever heard of this 1970, I don't think so. Mm-mm. Okay, let's put a pin in that because that should be a mini-soda. It was super interesting, so I want to talk okay. more about it. And I think there's tons of connections to the Women's March that just happened a few years ago. And a Great. lot of the same critiques Promos. come up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so she then, um, later in her career, she's only president for like barely two years, that um, if that even. She then becomes I'll get to why she leaves now. Um, but she becomes a chairwoman of a committee that leads to the founding of the National Women's Political Caucus, which involved Gloria Steinem and Shirley Chisholm. We've mentioned that group before. We'll probably talk more Mm -hmm. about that. She was the co-founder of Black Women Organized for Action in San Francisco, Black Women Stirring the Waters. She was chair of the California Women's Agenda, which was a state level action alliance of over 600 organizations. I mean, she's just like, constantly organizing and then Mm -hmm. died in 2017 at the age of 90 because of complications from dementia, which I always think is so, especially heartbreaking for, for people who so much of their lives is dedicated to their mind and, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking and writing and, you know, all of these things, it's just really sad. I mean, it's sad for anyone, but I think especially for that. So, um, yeah, she definitely was very vocal consistently that Black women, ugh, like, that there was a lot of either both racism and just, like, a lot of ignorance happening within now, and mm-hmm. she voiced a lot of frustration that— um the organization couldn't pull it together and frustration that black women like weren't engaging more with now. So it's kind of like both she acknowledged it was predominantly white and middle-class and, but she was like, but we all need like, we need to be in struggle together. Um mm-hmm. But, the, but ultimately she was super frustrated with white leadership. Like they just couldn't get it together to figure it mm-hmm. out. Um, and this quote I loved is from 1982. I believe that very firmly that black women are like no other women in the world. And one of the things that makes us so different is that we've managed to survive in one of the most hostile worlds there ever was. And we survive in that world with the understanding that racism and sexism are rampant. So that's Mm -hmm. the second precedent of now. Um, So then they shift from a focus on Title VII to really shift on the ERA. Again, we will talk a lot more about that. Um, And then the rest of what I'm gonna talk about comes from two Sources. One is an article in the Journal of Homosexuality by Clark Pomerlow called Empowering Members, Not Overpowering Them, the National Organization for Women, Calls for Lesbian Inclusion and California Influence, 1960s to 1980s. And then a student from the University of North Texas, um, Tara Tate, their master's thesis from 2000, which was so good. And master's theses can be you know, all over the place in terms of quality. And this was super fascinating. It's named We've only just begun a black feminist analysis of Eleanor Sneal's National Press Club address. Okay. So okay. we've got now up and running, we we kind of know already what some of the issues are. They're primarily focusing on the ERA. But parallel to all of this is that there is a gay rights movement that is exploding on the scene. In 1969, the Stonewall riots happen in New York. Um, they, that, the, I mean, there's been some activism even like decades before this, but that really like hits the national media scene. And so a lot of lesbians decided to be more vocal about their concerns within now, many of them weren't out publicly. And so they decided to start coming out. And so they had been members and even leaders all along, but they either were passing a straight or people knew they were lesbians, but they just never talked about it. It just yeah. wasn't something that they, they just like kind of sense that if they were to talk about it, they would be shut down. So they're like, well, not anymore. We're going to put our issues, our, our issues are women's issues too. We're going to put these forward. Like this is part of it. And you mentioned this in your episode on Betty Fernan. by um, what was her take on this?
0: Oh yes. But the sh- lavender menace as she called them. <laughs> yeah. She was not into their no. new found, uh, Agenda and voice. She's like, no, no, be quiet. Be quiet. You're gonna, you're gonna marginalize us. We're not gonna talk about this. Like, yeah, she wasn't exactly. exactly. Well, she came around later, apparently, with all
1: those balloons at yeah, the meeting, with the like, balloons. uh <laughs> yes. And this, this is actually one of the struggles. And what's interesting, I think, is that the how now handles a lesbian agenda is really tied up with their the way that they handle is use of, of race and racism and they're deeply connected to each other. And there are some points of tension between them and some points of, um, solidarity. And of course there are queer women of color who are right. involved in this. So, yeah. um, in fact, this is another Minnesota I really want to do. There was a group that got founded. It's the first civil and political organization for lesbians in the United States called the daughters of Bilitis. It was founded in 1955, mm-hmm. multiracial, class organization of lesbians. And they were, when now gets started, they're initially like, ah, we should like connect with this and then realize, no, we shouldn't, Mm. that there's a Mm. lot of debate about it. So just at like right away, there is conflict and people in the organization, straight, queer are arguing about what now should do about this. Rita Mae Brown was the editor of now's newsletter and she was really disgusted with what she saw as erasure of lesbians in the organization, like downplaying their contributions or like shushing them. So she actually publicly resigned along with um, Michaela Griffo and Susan Venucci They wrote a protest letter in the very last issue of the newsletter in January 1970. So right from the jump, people were like, I'm out, you know, like this isn't mm-hmm. cool. Um, there, So there's all this turmoil and, and like confrontation, but that executive board, then started to purge founding members. Um, Dolores Alexander had helped organize the New York City's chapter of NOW, was fired as the first executive director of National NOW on a then false accusation of being lesbian. New York NOW president Ivy Bettini, also a member since 1966, um, had held a public forum called Is Lesbianism a Feminist Issue in 1969? And then when she was trying to get Now's agenda to guarantee a right to sexual privacy. She was given the boot too. I'm not exactly so sure these what women that who means, are but...
0: complaining about women being let go from jobs for being women <laughs> are letting women go from jobs for being lesbians. Yes, and they found no conflict.
1: I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you'd think the <laughs> like irony what? would not be less on them.
0: <laughs> yeah, <sighs>
1: hypocrisy. Well, I okay. think what's so frustrating is that then what happens is that women within the organization have to start organizing to pressure the organization again this is such a common right. thread that we keep hearing like all of your organizing energies should be focused on the real problem like not that these right. aren't real problems like ideally we are a movement without
0: fighting each other that,
1: yes we can yeah. spend all mm-hmm. our energies on the things that we care about in the first place not having to fight the same bullshit within the organization. Mm-hmm. So for mm-hmm. example, the, there were women that organized, maybe there were men too. I um this article didn't talk about men being involved in this so much, but they would show up at meetings wearing t-shirts stenciled lavender menace and mm-hmm. they like took over the stage at one point to read a paper they'd written called the woman identified woman that was articulating theories of lesbianism as the the best form of politi- political solidarity with women and characterizing women that were straight in a, a couple with a man as identifying with male power, ego, status, protection, and acceptance. Um, just different ideas about like what lesbianism was and what it meant. And I'm um, trying to push back on that within the organization. They, they, this is certainly not all lesbians, but some of the lesbian feminists said that to be with a man romantically was a form of false consciousness. Like you're identifying with the oppressor. Um, mm-hmm. I, again, I don't think I, They're all lesbians did not believe that, but that was part of what was being discussed. Then, um, the winter of 1970 to 1971 is when the peak of this debate is really like at a fervor pitch and it leads to basically a split um, and there were really famous public leaders like Florence Kennedy do you remember Florence Kennedy oh, yes um, yes favorite. of course Gloria Steinem <laughs> Bella Absug um, a bunch of people that were organizing like really clear protests against the media because of course at this time too the media was being really dismissive of feminists as mm-hmm. D words man and, hating like ma- right very... that's true <laughs> like they were doing Bra-burners. that yeah right and it was an insult it was it was a way to discredit someone to accuse them of being mm-hmm. a lesbian so that context is super super real it's just how women chose to respond to it and some feminist women straight and lesbian decided to not to push back on that and some straight feminist women chose to like you were mentioning with the suffrage movement, like give into it and say like, you're right. Mm-hmm. And we would never, you know, want to undermine blah, 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 blah. Um, and in particular, now what had an unsupportive stance Um, Fernand kept reiterating that she denounced lesbianism. Eileen Hernandez actually um, said that now did not have a formal statement, which is a, a way to like, try to not take a side, which good luck with that position. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just, it, it was, it just sounds like super tense and awful and a ton of infighting. And then, of course, there were also links like, if you're lesbian, you're communist, and that that is also really bad. And, like, neither like, no, one doesn't lead to the other, and neither is inherently bad. So, whatever. Okay. Uh, but, of course, this is, like, late 60s, early 70s. This is the, yes, the general vibe. Um, so, in 1971, now puts forth this resolution. And it, this is where they... Um, the links between homophobia and racism become really clear, and both sides—the anti-gay side and the pro-lesbian side—link the like sexual identity to race, sometimes in really powerful ways, and sometimes in really problematic ways. So here's the the resolution. Um, lesbians discovered that now and other liberation groups reflected some of the same prejudices and policies of the sexist society they were striving to change. Lesbians were never excluded from now, but we have been evasive or apologetic about their presence within the organization. Afraid of alienating public support, we have often treated lesbians as the stepsisters, empowering um, or. Uh, The stepsisters allowed to work with us, but then expected to hide in the upstairs closet when company comes. Lesbians Mm -hmm. are now telling us that this attitude is no longer acceptable. Asking women to disguise their identities so they will not embarrass the group is an intolerable form of oppression, like asking black women to join us in whiteface. Which right there, the pronoun us.
0: Us. Who's writing us? Yeah. Mm Yeah.
1: So furthermore, this discrimination is inconsistent with now stated goal to recognize our sisterhood and to help women overcome self-denigration. If this pledge is to be anything more than rhetoric now must reassess the priorities that sacrifices principles to image. So that's what gets passed. Um, But it's very
0: wording reminds me of uh, Mitch McConnell's recent bullshit. Oh, on January about (laughs) African-Americans voting at lower rates than Americans. Ew, and people no. were like,
1: "What? Wait, like, no, <laughs> me,
0: this, uh, Mitch? Like, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the so common assumption of this base of who us right. is, and then, well,
1: and to be fair, it is not just a right, a like a, a Republican." Problem. This happens all the time on the right. left. Like you, and this, yeah. like now, this is, the, is this absolutely is the, the political left, mm-hmm. right? So Clark Pomelo says he's the author of this article. He says that the repetition of these associations, like the association between sexual identity and race, does not mean that predominantly white middle class feminist lesbians actually sustained alliances with femis- feminists of color or feminists from poverty, or that the three minority groups for- found such analogies mutually useful. Well. Analogizing oppressions is a longstanding feminist tactic to encourage self-understanding, empathy for others' plights, reformed behavior, and coalitions. Learning through comparisons tends to reinforce hierarchical relations that frequently prevent alliances. The major problem with analogy is that the process of making comparisons assumes sameness while leaving differences in the other people's or group's conditions subordinated." Although white feminist lesbians spoke from a marginalized position, they not only appropriated women of color's pain, but implied overstated claims to working together. And this Mm -hmm. is something we talk about, I think, a lot, the dangers Mm -hmm. of analogies and trying to make connections when they're not the same at all. And in Tara Tate's thesis, we'll get to the same um she's making really similar arguments about this. So 1971 is like the peak of these arguments, but they keep going. They're not resolved by this resolution that gets passed. And so um there these charges of homophobia and racism in the ways that they're linked just keep coming up over and over again. Um the lesbian tide documented an alliance between lesbian and minoritized women in a futile attempt to form a chapter dedicated to minorities, women's issues. So there were these attempts to especially white lesbians to like reach across, make connections um, then. And, but even now, so it it seems like both sides were like trying and getting it wrong, like for different reasons. So now um, did create a National Task Force on Sexuality and Lesbianism in 1973. They also um, put together, I don't know, like different reports and were trying to um, take some steps. And one of the next presidents, Karen DeCrow, was elected president um, and very much was pushing for being more intersectional. Her slogan was out of the mainstream into the revolution and emphasized rights for lesbians, racialized minorities, working class and union women. Um, her opponent, Mary Jen Collins Robson, charged that, quote, now is concentrating unduly on lesbians, and that's not where the mainstream is. And so she actually lost. And the woman mm. who was more radical and intersectional won. And so she was trying to shift now's tactics more away from, like, legal lobbying legislative work to street actions. So they had um, direct action against anti-feminist fundamentalist religions. Um, They were working on the states that had not ratified the ERA. They were taking all sorts of, like, guerrilla street Actions. Um, they were trying to focus on lots of different issues, um, including discrimination against lesbians, um, including abortion rights, um, employment discrimination cases. But there's still, even though this person was in pre- the president, it was setting the agenda and kind of pushing the organization that way. There were not there was not consensus or agreement about that. Um, One thing I thought was interesting is under this president too, um, she demanded pay for officers work, sliding scales for membership and childcare reimbursement to expand um, working class women's involvement. And now, Mm. so clearly like for at least a couple of years was trying to address these issues. So there, there isn't consensus and the people who don't want that to be what's happening push back and of course contextually like the mid 70s early 80s there's like a massive conservative it just like the general public a massive conservative push in schools and the media you know this is when reagan yep. gets elected president in just a couple of years so the the members who were pushing back against DeCrow and her agenda were Worried that we were, it's the classic arguments, like we're fighting too many fronts. We have to really focus on one issue. We should just focus on the ERA. We shouldn't really worry about lesbians because they're a minority of our group and we need to set aside their issues to focus on the majority of our group, which was also the argument for women of color. Like, well, let's focus on issues of racism when we get to it, but we have to focus Mm -hmm. on these other things first. Um, And so in the face of, and, and those women were saying, we are under attack. By the conservative right that at every level, like county, municipal, state, they have their like huge um, anti-gay initiatives and a ton of like dog whistle, if not straight up racist rhetoric. And so Mm -hmm. that like one way to think about that is like, yeah, so even more reason to build a coalition. These women were saying if we're going to make any gains this is not the time to push those agendas because the people who don't want them are getting more and more powerful. So let's just like not talk about that for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Clark also says, now's push for ratification is a familiar story, but it's linked to the continued alienation of of lesbians and feminists of color shows that this connection deepens understanding about the cultural war between feminists and members of the right. So the members who are within... Now, who wanted to deprioritize these issues and really focus on the ERA, um, end up getting behind this woman named Eleanor Smeal, known as Ellie Smeal. Have you ever heard of her? I don't think so.
0: doesn't sound familiar. I'd never ever
1: heard of her either, um, which now I'm kind of surprised by, but um, and yeah, I'd never heard of her. She was born to middle-class Italian immigrants and grew up in Cleveland. She went to Duke University, which was racially segregated, and she claimed she didn't know that until she got there. And I'm like, what? How do you yeah. not know that until yeah. you show up? But- that she went and she was horrified and participated in like protests about racial discrimination. So to me, she really is a really classic example of a liberal white woman who is like horrified by racism and cannot understand or doesn't demonstrate that she really understands how it's operating because it ends up operating through her, even though she says that she is finds it abhorrent and would never want to do that. So I think she's a really important person to learn about for that, for lots of reasons, but Mm -hmm. that's helpful. She um, gets married to a man, Charles Smeal, who was an engineer and was, you know, making good money. And so she is actually a housewife. She has five kids. The first job she ever had that paid her money was when she was elected president of now. Mm -hmm. And she was the first housewife elected. And some members love that because they're like, you are bringing the common person into the organization, even though it's like... That's not the common experience actually like that's a minority of women who are in that position but Mm -hmm. anyway again whiteness and wealth talking there so she um was involved in consciousness consciousness raising groups that we've Mm -hmm. talked about before she'd had five kids and she says i'll never forget we started talking about our problems and suddenly i realized that every single woman in that room except me was on tranquilizers and in counseling they were desperately unhappy they felt isolated alone it was incredibly depressing that was it i never did that again i couldn't stand it i wasn't like that and i didn't want to get like that so it's interesting that that was part of her like political awakening was being part of those groups but also seeing herself as totally distinct from those women. She's like in a super happy marriage and I think was happy in her position but
0: was hor- like I don't know what do you make of that quote? I mean, I don't know if she meant it that way, but it kind of seems like abandoning those women or looking down on them for being unhappy thing like ooh I don't want to be a part of that group. I'm going to walk away from it instead of being like, oh, these women have a totally different experience than me. What is it that's contributing to their unhappiness? And how can we discuss those issues and work towards eliminating them? Instead, and she maybe just that like, walks right. away.
1: And maybe the way she talked about it doesn't, <clears throat> maybe that is how more how she felt about it. And it just doesn't come across in how she was talking about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, and I think it is instructive that, her politicization comes from the Betty for Dan stream of all of this. It doesn't come yeah. from labor organizing. It doesn't come. And she was involved in some civil rights stuff, um, not in like a leadership role, but she, you know, she was aware of some of that stuff, but it mostly comes from this, these, you know, frustrated housewife groups, even though she herself wasn't a frustrated housewife. Like she, hmm. you know, loved her husband and seems like that marriage was really great. But, um, Anyway, then she had learned about, she said she's bumped into the ideas of the suffragists and feminists in her college years. Some of this is coming from a Washington Post article from 1985, right after the election. I mean, this was national news, who was getting Mm. elected to now and like what their agenda was, which I also thought was interesting. Um, So her husband would get books for her about suffragists, and she loved reading about them. So I was like, oh, no, she's Uh coming from the Betty Friedan stream of thought, and she's being inspired by the suffragists and Susan B. Anthony in particular, she really admires. I was like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Expand who you're reading. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) pick up some bell hooks, lady. Okay. (laughs) So she, um, yeah, so the article says it was in that bed. Oh, she has some sort of like physical ailment. I can't remember the details, but she's in, she's like laid up in bed and she starts reading all of these books about suffragists. And She learned about the 19th century feminist who pounded away for more than 70 years to reshape society, and it was in that bed that Smeal rearranged her life's plan. She would forget caution, forget the young matron routine, forget waiting for the kids to grow up, and then maybe go to a feminist meeting or two. I just made up my mind, she says, if I ever got out of that bed, I was going to live full speed ahead. I feel bad I can't remember why she was in bed, but... Anyway, that's what inspires her, So or inspires her. So then she joined, they moved to Pittsburgh. She joins a now chapter and becomes president of the Pennsylvania chapter and then, you know, gets elected president of the whole shebang. Some of mm-hmm. the things that she takes credit for, the Pregnancy Disability Act in 1978 that requires disability insurance programs to include pregnancy, Um The halting the Human Life Amendment, which would have greatly restricted abortion rates, which we're already back to fighting again. Mm -hmm. And then what was called the 59 cents campaign, which had uh, tried to get the word out that women made 59 cents to a dollar, which is super white because it's white women that make 59 cents to the dollar. And even Mm -hmm. today, there's still huge racial disparities. Like, yes, women make what is it like 85 cents to a dollar for a man, Mm -hmm. but it's of course
0: you can segregate that black women and Latino women so and this is a time. classic mm-hmm.
1: example like yeah you're i get where you're going with the campaign but like it, that was a just such a missed opportunity to be intersectional about it and just wasn't mm-hmm. um so in 1979 she runs up unopposed for a second term and this was when the they were pushing really really hard for era ratification because it had been extended um to 1982. So they're just like pushing, 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 pushing. And then, um, the, yeah. And she was, it's really hard because some of the sources seemed like she wasn't anti-lesbian, but then in other places, it seemed like she wasn't above smear tactics to try to keep herself in power about these issues. So that was not really clear. Her slate, like her campaign platform, um, was white middle-class Northeastern women who share her perceptions to the detriment of all of us who don't fit into these categories. That was the critique of her platform, mm-hmm. um, which I think is fairly fair. She was on record as um, opposing now's affirmative action commitment, saying, I believe we must go for qualifications. For too long, we've had token representation in this organization, she also spoke out against a black candidate saying, like, don't vote for her because she's a woman of color like that tokenizes her, which like, yeah, but that's also gross, like, ugh.
0: Mm-hmm. Ugh.
1: so, yeah, I-, I don't know. It just seemed hard to kind of pin her down sometimes. Yeah. So she ends up um, she ends up winning this contested election the people who love her love her the people who didn't vote for her it sounds like fucking hater and mm-hmm. this contingent of lesbian and straight women get together and they form a subset within now called appalled women and they try to denounce her election they say now is no longer a feminist organization now is trying to overpower its members rather than empower them um one member marilyn murphy connects the white suffragist drive for voting rights at the expense of immigrant and black people saying quote what's happening now is give us the era at any price now is becoming respectable mm-hmm. and paying the price of sisterhood so even mm-hmm. at the time they were able to see oh the suffragists did this and it was fucked up and now we're doing the same thing and we shouldn't mm-hmm. do that um mm-hmm. she also was able to to set the task who was in charge of certain task force and who was in charge of certain committees. So the national lesbian rights committee, she pushed out, or this is what she's accused of um, pushing out a woman who was very critical of this idea of the lavender menace and replaced her with a woman who told chapters. They only had to refrain from speaking against lesbian rights, but they didn't have to say anything for lesbian rights, um, which seems shitty. She was also criticized for how white, the group of people was that she surrounded herself with. Um, Mm -hmm. She didn't like that. And they, there were also, especially women of color within now were frustrated that she was so single issue oriented. They said without active leadership against racism as well as sexism, we may wake up one day to find that white women have achieved equality under law, but minority women still relegated to the bottom of the economic ladder can only achieve equality in token numbers. And Eileen Hernandez, the second president we talked Mm -hmm. about before, she passes or introduces and it passes a resolution that all black women and men should turn in their membership cards until now addresses their racism. And then lesbian leaders encourage lesbians to do the same thing and then join together to really link um homophobia and racism as under as like problems that are perpetuated by the way that now is operating. And a lot of the women who were in those who have those identities or crossed over those identities have been friends for a long time. And they're like, fuck this route. So Mm -hmm. this is like, they've only been around for five or 10, you know, they're a very new organization and this is still happening. So she, so she was well aware of these um, critiques. One quote from her was, um, I wish there were more blacks here traditionally a lot of minority members do not join organizations that they don't see as serving their interests i don't think now has picked up the right issues there are so many issues that now has to address that race has not been in the forefront as much as it should be and in tara tate's thesis she says okay ellie but a glance at the agenda items that Smeal wanted to pursue certainly contributed to the previous trend of focusing on white women's agenda items so Mm -hmm. she could even say that's the problem it's like all right then have a different agenda you mm-hmm. know, um, and then other comments from executive leaders and from Smeal were like, wow, women of color have their own groups and like that, good for them. Um, then, but she does have this track record, like I said, of participating in Duke, um, protests against discrimination. She was someone who was arrested protesting apartheid at the South African embassy, which I'd never heard of that. Um, she pro- mobilized a protest against Win Dixie stores that the Southern Christian Leadership Council was accusing of, um, Racial and gender discrimination practices. So, it again, she I think is a really instructive example of a liberal, even progressive white woman who's like not seeing this. And so, in under her leadership, the membership only five percent of members were black, um, and she claimed she wanted and and membership was dipping. Which, to your point earlier, like, if you aren't attending people's needs, like, they're not going to show up and you aren't going to yeah. be able to achieve what you want to achieve. But she, her plan was to increase membership by targeting younger women and older women. Like, she saw it as an age, like, well, let's expand across the age spectrum instead of thinking about like identity issues that would connect people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, by 1981, um, now had dismantled their task force on racism and, mm apparently had ditched the word feminism in their bylaws, which I can't, and I have to look that up because that feels like bizarre, but um, just had taken out some of these things that people felt like were steps forward. So Ellie um, Smeal was president from 1977 to 1983. And then this is some super shady shit. Are you ready?
0: Mm-hmm. She,
1: the bylaws say you can't serve three consecutive terms. So she appoints someone to run a, to run and be president with the plans that she will run again. And win like oh you just take my place for a little while and then i'll take over again Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. which i remember susan anthony doing soup like similar stuff with Mm -hmm. their organizations too so she puts um judy goldsmith in place who when she's president of now helps get geraldine ferraro as the vice presidential nomination for the democratic Mm -hmm. party and then judy and ellie end up hating each other because (laughs) goldsmith then runs again wanting to win and like, doesn't want to step aside for Ellie. And so they have this like intense election. Um, and Judy charges Ellie with ruining the organization financially and structurally by pushing for ratification of the ERA. Um, Judy Goldsmith said she wanted it to be more than a single issue organization. Um, she thought they needed to have multiple tactics Um they, she goes, Ellie is not a coalition builder. When she was president the first time, now had a tendency to say to other public interest groups, we'll send out our own letter on a certain issue. It was like, you can ride along on our train, but don't forget who's the engineer. I think that's happening again, and it makes me sad. That first quote's from Carol <laughs> Tucker like, Foreman. That
0: just basically describes how white women run I everything. I know. Like, I you can know. hop on, but I'm like right. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of this bitch.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Like right. you can be here, but only if I'm in charge. And that's that quote is from Martha Buck, who you can imagine Ellie Smeal does not like. Um, yeah. So the people were just like super frustrated. Oh, another. Um, this also might be a Martha Buck quote. Judy did a masterful job of turning now to the panoply of feminist issues. Ellie is not creative, not a sharer. It's very much a business of a woman who wants power and will whatever do whatever she has to do to get it. And Ellie, in response to these, this comes from the Washington Post article. they interview interviewing her after the election, like here's what people inside your organization say about why they didn't support you. And she goes, well, I feel it's important to march to your own drummer.
0: Fuck him. That's a response.
1: <laughs> Which again, do you remember Susan Anthony saying the same thing? Like they uh-huh. just jealous by, you know, <laughs> 19, whatever, 1920 speak. Um, oh. Yeah. Same, mm-hmm. exactly. Same mm-hmm. problem. So then um, she, you know, wins this election even the majority of the board doesn't support her, but she won a majority of the, the national votes and she immediately calls for 30 people to resign who didn't support her, which like that's going to go over great. Okay. Um, yeah. And the the membership had dipped, they were in debt. Um, and this is where this thesis was so interesting because that's the setting for the speech she gives to the national press club about now's agenda and like what needs to happen. And she comes out really strong. There's actually a lot of quotes that I thought you would love that she said because In the 80s, she's just making no bones about her fury for the right um, Mm -hmm. and calling them fascists and just very upset about things. But what's really great about this thesis is that it, again, unpacks what a white progressive woman is saying through the lens of black feminism to say, "Okay, you're saying these things. But at the same time, the way you're saying them actually reveals what you really think and where you're coming from. And it's no wonder why you can't be in solidarity with people just based on the way that you're even framing things. Mm -hmm. So I'll finish up just talking about the critique of this one speech, and then we'll follow up with like the nineties forward with now. Um, the next time we talk. Okay. So she, um, Tara Tate says, a critical analysis of the Smeal, of Smeal's discourse through a black feminist lens unveils a continuation of traditional white feminist goals and objectives. It's apparent through her use of examples, analogies, and issue focal points that Smeal fails to shed her white privilege. It's also important to note the areas that Smeal remains silent about, which is a further extension of black cri- feminist criticism of thought and practice. And I actually love this because It's so easy. And I know you and I have loved learning about like the flagrant, obvious problem women that Mm -hmm. are like purposely bigoted. But I think it's so important to read a critique like this of a specific speech that helps us understand how racism still works through us, even when we say we don't want that to be the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Tara Tate says she makes all these connections to the suffragist movement in this speech, just like. All over the place, like we are picking up the mantle and like the suffragists were so awesome and, you know, making all these connections to that. But she says this is really problematic through a black feminist lens. Black women do not shape activism around the current injustice. The current injustices that black women face, but view it as a continuation of a history and a social order that have deprived them of equal status with white Americans. Many black women feel that the victory of the suffrage movement was another way to affirm white superiority. Although believing that all women should have the right to vote, black feminists argue that the white political sphere rewarded the overtly racist tactics of the white suffrage movement by passing the 19th Amendment. And then she cites bell hooks all over this thesis. Mm -hmm. A black feminist would view Smeal's mirroring of the current women's movement battles with the historical suffrage movement as another recreation of history through a unitary white perspective. She also is annoyed because in Smeal's speech, she talks about this is how now talks about it in their history page. There was a strong feminist movement. Then there wasn't. Mm -hmm. And now we're coming back, baby. Like, here Mm -hmm. we go. So, white
0: women to the rescue. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, she says that the women's movement was virtually dead after the right to vote passed. So, Tara Tate says, when the claims for suffrage were no longer being heated, many believed the women's movement died off until the 1960s. That is an inaccurate depiction of women's movement history through the narratives of black women and could be said of indigenous women and like all, mm-hmm. all sorts of other like racialized and ethnic backgrounds for sure. The Harlem Renaissance, beginning in 1917, brought forth creative energies for many black women. Black women writers such as Zora Neale Hurston, Angelina Will Grimke, Dorothy West, focused on the intersectional injustices that black women faced. Um, She gives examples of black feminism and women mobilizing around anti-lynching campaigns, unionizing, education, improved working conditions for domestic workers, black feminism during the 1950s with advocates like Ella Baker, Joanne Robinson, Daisy Bates, instrumental in facilitating the following decade's civil rights movements. So Smeal's exclusion ignores other times of struggle and fighting that occurred outside the traditional white suffragist movement. For Smeal to hail the Seneca Falls Convention as the place where all individuals were included, and that's our model— continues the invisibility of the voice and experience of black women because, of course, as we know, black women were not at the Seneca Falls Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tara Tate also talks about this idea of white solipsism, which she describes as the predisposition to think, imagine, and speak as if whiteness was the only way to describe the world, and gives all these examples of, of Ellie Smeal doing this, that she quotes Jefferson. So Tara Tate says, focusing on Jefferson – is once again an appeal to the traditional white historical narrative. The majority of blacks do not associate Thomas Jefferson with liberty. (laughs) Go figure. Right. Um, Also shocker. Smeal refers to women throughout her speech as if they were a single unitary collective of identities. She brings up something called the wage ghetto. Again, this like 59 cent on the dollar, but Mm -hmm. uses it unironically, even though ghetto is a term that apply, like is used to describe neighborhoods filled with minoritized, racially minoritized people um, that she's, Using it to apply to all women and saying that regardless of race, we suffer the same inequalities, which we don't. Um, she talks about how Smeal doesn't critique capitalism, and that's a huge difference between traditional feminist thought and black feminist thought. Um, she says, Smeal's analysis of the wage discrepancies is shallow, incomplete, and exclusive of minority experience. She talks about how Smeal is like raging on about abortion. I think in ways you and I would be like, yes, yes, you know, fired up mm-hmm. about, but Tara Tate, of course, says, Black women certainly embraced the pro-choice movement. However, they were disproportionately affected by unsafe abortions before Roe v. Wade. She talks about this all the stuff we learned about in our reproductive rights episodes that she doesn't talk about sterilization. She doesn't talk about how women of color were tested on for the pill. Um, she doesn't talk about how... She's just focused on the legality of abortions. She's not even talking mm-hmm. about the safety of abortions which disproportionately affect women of color. Um She also... Smeal pits men as the enemy and Tara Tate says most black women reconcile this by claiming that their fight is not against men, but the system of capitalism that has exploited them and cannot imagine not trying to be in community with men, um, Mm -hmm. especially who share their racialized identity. And then when she's, when Smeal's reminiscing about like when I was at Duke and she tells this, you know, powerful story about being involved in discrimination or protest against discrimination, Tara Tate's like, that's nice. And I appreciate that. But also how you're talking about it is really fucked up. You're talking about it as if racism is over. You're talking about people of color and women as if they're two separate groups. Um, and then she says, allowing white women to articulate that their oppression is synonymous with racial oppression nullifies the uniqueness that racial oppression has on minority men and women. It takes an experience that is not within the realm of white privilege and explains it as, as if it were. Smeal uniquely violates this concept. After telling the story of her picketing the Durham movie theater, she filters the narrative through a white lens by stating that she could not believe the name she was called and the hatred exhibited to her. An audience would immediately empathize with Smeal and forget the hatred directed toward black men and women every day. Smeal, although personally experiencing the narrative, took a story of oppression against a race and made it hers, recentering the race issue in a veil of white privilege. And the last part that I'll say here is um, Tara Tate says, It's not the argument of this analysis that Smeal's rhetoric should be viewed as overtly racist. However, this critical analysis does argue that while the rhetorical strategies Smeal employs may further white women's liberation, it only further entrenches the domination and invisibility that Black women have felt from their exclusion of the women's movement.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Here we go. Yeah. 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 I'd never heard of her. Didn't know that history. So that is very interesting. Not surprising, sadly. Um, But yeah, now I'm glad to know more of that.
1: Well, and next time we'll pick up where this leaves off and, and just, the 80s and what the leaders of now and other organizations that I know will get into other wings that pop up, you know, other approaches to these issues. But mm-hmm. the 80s, I feel like we are living in a very similar time. What, mm-hmm. what strikes you about the the politics of the 80s that just feels super familiar as you're reading through stuff and prepping for it? its It
0: feels like a time warp. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like we're back in that same fight of, you know, like a conservative backlash against progress, um, a rejection of, I want to just say like sanity, <laughs> like mm. science and, uh, human experience and just trying to push back on this solely whitewashed view of history. I mean, with all of the anti CRT stuff and book banning and Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then to like parallel, what's happening within progressive spheres, like all of the anti like trans stuff that's even going on within um, women's organizations and all of that fighting that just seems to be repeating what we talked
1: about. Yes. All of that. And this like very anti, gay like in the 80s this like aids moral panic and mm-hmm. and this is i mean really this is our childhood and i can remember mm-hmm. a lot of this even mm-hmm. just the 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 efforts at every political level to shut down any expansion of gay rights to shut down anything that had like multiculturalism attached to it like now i think it's very anti trans focused now i think it's anti equity or anti CRT but it's the same it's mm-hmm. the same motivations for yeah. sure. So she's just an interesting figure because I appreciate her willingness to call all of that out, but I think she's so important for us to learn about because she's doing it in ways that are not helping, you know, right. at a real fundamental level. So okay. I, yeah, I'm excited for this Lat, I promise, last and final chapter <laughs> um, on now, and then we're going to switch gears and
0: learn a little bit more about the ERA, but yeah. I think this okay. should be good. Thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. All right, guys, we will talk again next week. Thanks for coming. Bye.